how you guys doing? It's good to see you guys again. It feels like it's been a month since I've seen you. Grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. Grab your study guide. If you're using one of the church Bibles, we're going to be on page 282. Pull it up on your phone or grab the Bible. That'll become important. As you guys are turning there, I want to tell you a story that, was, that came from a um, Michael Jordan's book, Driven From Within. And he tells the story. It's kind of a strange story, but he goes to a, a, a business associate's house. His name is Fred Whitfield. And he goes to his house, and I guess they were meeting outside on the patio, and it got cold, and they were there for a little while. And so Michael Jordan asked his, his business associate, Fred, can I borrow a jacket? Can I buy your sweatshirt? He's like, no problem. Just go inside, end of the hallway. My room's there. Open up the, open up the closet. Just grab anything that looks good to you, anything that feels comfortable. So he, he, off he goes. Michael Jordan goes to, in his house, and, and it should take him a minute, right? It takes, he's gone like for five minutes. And, but, but Michael Jordan comes back not with one jacket. He comes f- with an armful of jackets, shirts, and shoes, all of them Puma. Now, this is a good time to remind you, if you don't know, that Michael Jordan is the primary spokesperson for Nike. Okay? True story. Michael Jordan takes all this Puma gear, takes it into the kitchen, grabs a butcher knife, and cuts it all up. True story. He takes all the slit, takes it outside throw it in the garbage, sits down at the kitchen table, goes across to, says to his business associate, he says two things. Number one, tomorrow morning, call my Nike uh, representative, and we will replace everything I just destroyed. Number two, don't let me ever see you wearing anything other than Nike again. If we're going to be business associates, this is the phrase that that caught my attention. You You can't straddle the fence. Now, here's what I want you to know. God feels the same way. Not about whether you wear Puma or Adidas or whatever, or Nike. He feels the same way. He wants you to have total commitment. He wants you to be completely bought in. He doesn't want you to straddle the fence. He doesn't want just a little piece of your closet. He wants the whole closet. Heck, he wants the whole house. Now, why I'm sharing this with you is because this story illustrates for us the beginning of this brand new series on the life of Elijah. It's going to take us all the way, 10 weeks or so, uh, right up to Easter. And, and the, the first thing, it's tempting to start in 1 Kings chapter 17, because that's where the person of Elijah first shows up. That would be a mistake. You need to start one chapter earlier, because it presents for us the background and the problem as to why God sends Elijah. And the problem is God's people lack commitment. They lack commitment, total commitment to God. Let me give you real quickly the historical context. Let's put it on the screens. There's three things you need to know. First of all is that Israel wants a king. Now, up until this point in the Bible, God has led his people with priests and prophets and judges, and it's worked out pretty good. But the the Jewish people start whining. Oh, we want to be like every other country. They have a king. We want a king, right? They want to be like the Joneses, keep up with them. And so God says, okay, I'll give you a king. And it's, it starts out okay, not great okay. It starts out with Saul, right? Then David, decent king. Then Solomon, pretty good king. But then after Solomon, Israel experiences civil war. And the, the, the country of Israel splits into two. You see the map up on the screen. Now, it's very important. As you're reading through Scripture, if you don't understand this and know this, you're going to get all confused. You have this, the northern tribe or, or the northern kingdom of ten tribes, and it keeps the name of Israel. Then you have the southern tribe, the two tribes, southern kingdom has two tribes, and it has, it is given the nation of Judah. Both of them at the same time have a king. 
And that's what can get a little confusing. Second thing, the last thing that happens is Israel, the northern kingdom, they anoint a king by the name of Ahab. And the minute Ahab becomes king, it's an absolute disaster. 1 Kings 16, if you have your Bibles there, we're going to start in verse 29. We're going to read it, break it down, and help you understand what's going on here. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, northern kingdom. So even right away, you see the two kingdoms, both representing God's people, but both of them distinct. It says uh, uh, Ahab reigned in Samaria for, uh, over Israel for 22 years. Now, I want you to notice how it describes him, right? You, you, you pull it up on Google or Wikipedia. What does it say about this guy? Here it comes, verse 30. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than anyone before him. How would you like that to be on your resume? There, there was one person that bothered and ticked God off more than anyone else. This guy right here. Now, the writer of Kings doesn't have a lot of time to explain. He says, let me, there's three things he does that bothered God. Number one, he not, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. So the first thing he does is he minimizes sin. One thing you have to understand is the minute you start using different words for sin than God uses, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Does that make sense? God says this is wrong, this is sinful, and if you change that to go, ah, it's probably not wise, it's maybe unacceptable. That's not the same terminology that he uses. He trivializes sin. He makes sin out to be, ah, kind of bad, but not the end of the world. Second thing that he does, he married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Now, um, in scripture, God always gives some a command related to marriage. And he says, when you're looking who you should get married, here's the basic principle that he gives. You want to be like-minded when it comes to faith. In the New Testament, it says, don't be unequally yoked. Now, God gives that command not just for the Christian. He gives it for the other person as well. Here's why. If you're married, would you agree with me? Marriage is tough. It's great, but it's also tough. You got to work it, right? You know what makes marriage even harder? It's when you have two people who on the most important issue on planet Earth, faith, God, eternity, if they don't agree on that, that couple will experience unique problems that no other couple will experience. As a pastor, I'll marry two pagans. I'll marry two Christians. They're both on the same page. But the minute they're on different pages, what Scripture indicates is eventually, at some point, you're going to experience problems that no other couple is experiencing. And God wanting and loving both of the individuals say, you have to be on the same page. And, and, and Ahab's like, ah, I don't care. I'm going to marry Jezebel anyway. Now, if you don't know Jezebel, she's a piece of work, right? There's a re have you know, do you know anybody that has called their daughter Jezebel? You want to know why? It's because of this woman right here in the Bible. It's got a negative connotation. And as we go through the series, we're going to see how horrible this woman was. And because she was so horrible, even in our culture, we don't name our kids Jezebel. Right? But the problem, the biggest problem wasn't trivializing sin and marrying Jezebel as serious as they were. The biggest problem comes at the end of verse 31. Let me show you. Let's keep reading. Ahab began to serve Baal. 
You go, who the heck is Baal? Baal was the Canaanite god. Baal was the pagan god of that area before God's people come into the promised land. Well, time out. Right away, that should be a red flag. Even though there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, even though there's Israel and Judah, they both represent God's people. They're both intended, and the kings, to point people to the one true God, Yahweh. And here we have Ahab. He begins not only to serve Baal and worship him, he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. So instead of pointing people to the God of the Bible, Yahweh, he starts to point them to the pagan God, Baal. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings. Nobody ticked God off more than Ahab. You do know that, that God every once in a while gets ticked off, don't you? You know, you know why? Because he has feelings just like you have. He's not just static in terms of his feelings. What you do, what I do, affect him emotionally. And he got ticked off at Ahab. Just to summarize, three huge mistakes that Ahab does. Let me show you. Number one, let's put it on the screen. Number one, he minimizes the seriousness of sin. We talked about that. Number two, he marries outside of God's plan. Number three, he goes all in and embraces idolatry or Baal. Question mark, what are you doing? Exclamation point, you got to be kidding me. I've given you an image on the screen, a 3D image of how the Canaanites pictured Baal. Now, when you look at that image, clearly Baal worked out because he's got a nice set of abs. You see that, right? But Baal essentially is a combination of three things. He's a combination human, goat, insect. That's who the Canaanites worshipped. Now, I don't, I don't think I would have a need to have anyone tell me that I probably shouldn't worship someone that looks like that. But Ahab introduces Baal worship to God's people. And he introduces idolatry to God's people. Now, right about now, some of us are thinking, whoa, okay, well, this is really interesting. That's an interesting image of what they used to worship. Uh, thank goodness that I can take a week off. Thank goodness that this morning doesn't have anything to do with me because I don't worship Baal. Or I, don't, I don't worship that. I don't, idolatry, I don't have a statue in my living room that I bow down to. So today I could take a week off. Not so quick. That would be a mistake. You see, if you, if you have a literalistic understanding of idolatry, you're going to think about it as just, well, a statue. Something or, or the image that you see on the screen. Some pagan weird god that people used to worship in some ancient world. But when you have a fuller, complete understanding of idolatry, you realize that this could be one of the major, if not the most major issue that we as Christians have to think through and process. The main thing I want you to understand this morning, and I'm going to repeat it. You're going to hear me saying it over and over again. Uh, whether you jot down the notes or not, I hope you remember it. Let me give you the definition of idolatry. Let's put it on the screen. Idolatry, as defined by Scripture, is any time that you and I love, value, or pursue anything or anyone more than we do God in our relationship with Jesus. Anytime I love, value, or pursue anything more than God or my relationship with Jesus. Now, it's easy to identify worshiping Baal as idolatry because he's, you know, that's weird. Or, you know, something that's bad, you know, drugs. That's clearly idolatry. But what I want to show you is, that, no, no, it's not just the bad stuff. No, properly understood, good things 
can be idols to us. Look at what Paul says. You see it at the bottom of that slide. In the book of Colossians chapter 3, he says, don't be greedy for the good things in life. Would you agree God's given you a lot of good stuff? We, 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 we slept in, 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 in good things last night. We drove to here in a good thing. We're wearing nice things. We put good food into us. You're sitting by good people, friends, family members that God has blessed you with. God has given me all kinds of good stuff. Oh, yeah, I got a couple problems. We all do. But God, for the most part, has blessed us so much, especially living in the United States of America. And Paul would say, time out. Think about all those good things God has given you, all those good things God has blessed you with. Do you realize that if you love that too much, value that too much, pursue that too much, that by very definition is idolatry? That's what he's trying to help you understand. It's why the great reformer, John Calvin, once said this. He says, every one of us, Everyone is even from our mother's womb a master craftsman of idols. Every one of us are great at identifying something in our life that we will love, value, and pursue more than God. The great American preacher D.L. Moody said this, You don't have to go to heathen lands to find false gods and idols. America is full of them. Things that we love, value, and pursue more than God is by very definition an idol. So here's my goal this morning. I I, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. I don't want to make anyone feel guilty. But I do want to help open your eyes, put on a new pair of lenses, and be honest with yourself. Is there something in your life that is potentially an idol to you? Now, what I want to do is I want to give you examples. This is by no means an exhaustive list. Whether you jot down notes or not, I've given you basically the list of 10 modern-day examples in your study guide, and I want to go through them. So let's go through them right here. Let's put the first 10 up there, first five of them up there. Modern-day idols. First one is the idol of entertainment. We love to be entertained. What are the primary ways we're entertained? Number one is movies. It's a multi-billion-dollar industry. Uh, and the other is sports. We love to be entertained by sports. Let me, let me just use that as an example. Let's just pretend. Imagine with me for a moment. Can you imagine if people so loved church that they would change their entire schedule and make sure that they never miss a Sunday service? Imagine that. Imagine that people who change their schedule would also make sure that they would get to church early. And when I say early, I mean like two hours early. So they could be in the parking lot and have barbecues together. Imagine that, right? Imagine that when they would come to church, after church, we would get together and we would talk about everything that happened in the service. Then we would go home and we would watch a TV show with highlights of all the great stuff that happened in the service. And we would call it Church Center. Right? Every once in a while, there'd be a bunch of teenagers and young men that would show up to church without shirts. But they would have letters painted on their chest. And they would line up in front of all of us. And together it would spell, we love to tithe. Yeah. (laughs) Every once in a while, too, when the pastor was preaching. And the pastor would say, in conclusion, everybody would groan. And everybody would hope, oh, no. I hope he goes into overtime. I need more. I want more. Okay, I'm pushing a little too far. Clearly that wouldn't. But you get my point. There's, There's a professor at Penn State. His name is Charles Prebish. Here's what he says. He's not a Christian. 
America's newest and fastest growing religion is sports. What we give to it is equivalent to what people give their religious faith. Maybe you're not into sports, so let me ask it a different way. And just be honest. I'm going to give you four scenarios, four things that I would take away for you for one month. And you be honest, what would bother you more? Ready? Here we go. What if we took away movies from you for an entire month? No movie. By the way, you know the average American watches more movies in a week than we read books in a year. I don't know what that says about us, but it's true. No movies, no Netflix, no cable TV, no Amazon Prime, no Redbox. No movies for a month. Or what if we took away social media for a month? Social media crashed for a month, right? No Instagram, no Facebook, no Twitter, nothing. Three, your favorite sports team canceled games for the month. Right in the middle of the season. They canceled a month of the A's or the Giants or a month of the Raiders or the Niners, whatever, the Warriors. They just took off for a month. Everyone else is playing except your team. Or, number four, your church closed for a month. Now, don't answer. Just be honest. What would bother you more? What would you talk about more? What would upset you more? See, what I'm now trying to get at is help you understand that idolatry is not bowing down to a statue. Idolatry is more reflective on what you daydream about, what you fill your schedule with, what consumes your thinking. That is a greater indicator of really what might, could possibly be an idol in your life. The second one is the idol of pleasure or sex. You'll notice for every one of these, they're all good things. I'm giving you a list of good things. Sex was given as a gift by God to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. But oh my goodness gracious me if we have not turned it into an idol in the United States of America. The, the porn industry grossed more money last year than professional baseball, professional basketball, and professional football combined. It made more money than ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox combined. Don't, don't tell me we haven't turned it into an idol. Is, is God for pleasure, comfort, and sexuality in the context of marriage? Absolutely. But even in the context of something that is good, we have pushed it way too far, and for some of us, it has become idolatry. The idol of achievement. By the way, did you notice in your study guide, I've given you a reference for every single one. I'm not just plucking these out of thin air. So what, what is... What is the idol of achievement? The perfect example would be Martha in, in Luke chapter 10. You remember the story of Martha? She's more consumed with the perfect meal than spending time with Jesus. That's exactly what we're talking about this morning, idolatry. See, the person that idolizes achievement, you want to know what they get their greatest satisfaction from? Ready? Here it comes. Checking things off their to-do list. Oh, they love that. Or you know what stresses them out the most? When they can't check things off their to-do list. Now, let me just, is there anything wrong with getting things done in life? No. We all need to get things done. But if you're driven by it, if you're controlled by it, could it possibly be that achievement is actually an idol for you? The idol of food and drink. Now, this is a problem because I'm coming off of a cruise, right? <laughs> and you do know that, did you know that the average person gains five to six pounds on a cruise? On a six-day cruise. I went on a 12-day cruise. Right? So, but let's just talk about this for a while. Uh, about two years ago, January, you also know that December is the main month that we gain weight. You know that, right? Average person gains eight pounds from Thanksgiving to December. 
end of December. Isn't that encouraging? And um, so in January, there I am. Now, I don't avoid the good Christmas cookies and food. I like that, but I'm careful. But I remember in January, first week of January, there I am trying to, I'm putting my jeans on, and I'm like, oh, my goodness gracious, I can't put these on. You know, I'm like, they must, say, they must have been put in the dryer. I'm, I am struggling to get my jeans on. I am working them for three minutes until I realized they weren't my jeans. They were Sandy's jeans. <laughs> Try and get that out of your mind. Right? And I thought I looked good in them. But, you know, that's beside the point. The point is this, and we could chuckle at it, but here's the point. You do know that we are the most overweight nation in the world. Now, for some of us, overweight are, are, are physical issues uh, and medical issues. But for some of us, let's just call it what it is. It's food portion issues. I understand the term comfort food, but if it, if it means what some people suggest psychologically, we got a problem. Really? That's what you're going to get your comfort from? How about the term social drinking? So I, I don't believe Scripture teaches you, you can't have a, a beer with your pizza or wine with your spaghetti but if, if we're the pe- kind of people that can't be social and can't be fun and can't laugh without a drink, we got a problem. So let's just call it what it is. For some of us, we have leaned into alcohol and food far more than we should. Like, you know what? When it comes to exercise, is it true that some of us exercise just so we can eat more? Oh, sounds like the Holy Spirit's working over here. God's moving right there. We should be exercising so we're healthy. That's way too convicting. Let's move on. Um, Number five, the idol of money. I could have started with this um, because, you know, Jesus spends more time talking about money than heaven, hell, and prayer combined. You want to know why? Because he knows me. And he knows you. See, it starts out very innocent, Right? Remember when you get out of high school and you get your first kind of full-time job or whatever, and you're just, you, you're excited to pay the bills and to, you know. And then you can't even think back, something changed. Where now it's not about paying the bills, now we're consumed by it. Consumed by, by money. And making more and more and more. Mark Twain said it like this. He said, some men worship rank. Some worship heroes, some worship power, some worship God, but they all worship money. So I, I, I don't know if it's true that everyone does, but I, I, will, I do want to push this just a little bit and try and help you identify, is this possibly an idol for you? So you figure it out. Let me ask you some questions. One, the job that you took was your primary reason for taking it how much money you would make. And if the answer is yes, we got a problem. Now, should you be concerned by how much you're making? Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. But you want to know how you should choose a job? Look and see how God made you. Look and see the gifts he gave you. Look and see the temperament he gave you. He made you specially and he made you unique. And what you're good at, I'm not so good at. And that's the kind of career he wants you to embrace. Yes, you got to make money, but that's what you, your first question should be, who has God made me to be, not how much can I make? Talk to someone who's made, making a ton of money but miserable and ask them, is that really what you want? There's a difference between standard of living and quality of life. Question number two, 
Are you constantly comparing yourself to how much you make versus how much someone else would make? Question number three, do you get your self-esteem for the si from the size of your bank account or the amount of your paycheck? Question number four, do you spend more time thinking about increasing your retirement fund or your 401k than you do increasing the amount you give God? See, I could give you a bunch of more questions, but I'm just trying to get at the, at the root of it. And the reality is, let's just not play games. Half of us struggle with this. Let's just not play games. Let's call it what it is. There's a reason Jesus spends so much time talking to us about this. And there's a fine line between being concerned about it and being, you know, working at it, and then it becoming idolatry. Let me give you the last five. Number six, the idol of power. 1 Timothy chapter 3 says it's perfectly fine if your motives are pure to want to be a leader and enjoy exerting influence, having power. The word power isn't a dirty word. Some people can make it dirty. However, I've given you a re another reference. The story happens in 2 Samuel 15 of someone who's consumed by power, consumed by being in charge. And if you're that person, if you just, you have to be in charge, whether that's at work or whether that's at church or whether that's at home or whether that's with your friends or, or whether we're going on vacation or who gets to do what, who gets to do or where we go out for dinner, if you always have to have your way, guess what? You might have the idol of power and control. Got to be in control. The next one is the idol of romance. Let me talk to you about this one a little bit. Is it, it is amazing the, the message that is screamed to us by society. Here's what society would tell you. You want to be happy? Listen up. All you got to do is find that special person. That's what makes you happy. I mean, every other Disney movie, the princess is only happy when she meets her knight in shining armor. The Beatles sung, all you need is yeah. over and over and over we're told this message. And, and I'm ashamed to say that even in the Christian world, we are sending the wrong message to singles. All you got to do, go on Amazon, type in Christian books for singles. You want to know what comes up? 75% of the books, how to find the perfect mate. That's what we teach people. That's what One of my favorite titles, I, I wrote this down. Uh, Christian book, How to Find a Mate, was entitled, If Men Are Like Buses, How Can I Catch One? <laughs> I think that's funny. I'm going to buy that, give that to my friends. Listen up. If you're single, listen up real carefully. If you're single, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be married. Nothing wrong whatsoever. However, if you are giving someone else control of your fulfillment, satisfaction, and completement, that is by very definition idolatry. I'm fine as your pastor, you wanting to have that relationship. But, but don't, don't give them something they were never intended to fulfill for you. How, how quickly have we forgotten what's, what's not in this book? Do you realize that if marriage was a prerequisite for spiritual maturity and fulfillment and satisfaction, do you realize what would be in this book that isn't? Jesus would have got married and give us an example of what that looks like. How quickly we forget that our Savior was single. So, yes, it matters. And, yes, it's important to many of us. But don't make it out something to be it's not. And never intended to be. Number eight is very close. The idol of family. 
Now, does God want us to love our spouses, our kids, our parents? Of course. Does he want us to sacrifice for them? Of course. But I hate to say it, the same principle applies. If you love anyone more than God and your relationship with Jesus, that is by very definition idolatry. Can I give you a little secret about how to be a great parent, how to be a great spouse? You want to know the secret? Here it is. Don't impose on your family for them to be God for you. How unfair would it be? How unjust would it be? How unrealistic would it be if I went to Sandy and said, 100% of my fulfillment, satisfaction, and happiness, all of it is on you. How unfair would that be? How much pressure? Now, certainly what Sandy does influence and impacts me, but I shouldn't give her the position that only God deserves. Does that make sense? And I'm telling you, if you get the order right, it actually makes you a better spouse. It makes you a better parent. Number nine, the idol of success. This could be career success, educational success, athletic success. I look good success. I have a church that's growing success, whatever you want to call it. Now, does God want you to accomplish things in life? Yeah, he does. He does. But if you're controlled by success, what ends up happening is, is you now end up worshiping your work and worshiping your career and worshiping whatever it is that you want advancement from. You begin to give it a place in your life that it never deserves. And of course, number 10. Do I even have to mention number 10? The idol of self. Don't we just love ourselves? You ever wake up in the morning and just want to give yourself a hug? It is a major problem. It's why all of us have selfishness within us. Don't tell me you're not selfish. We all are. We just got to fight it. Now, I'm going to leave the list of 10 up there, but I want to show you a verse that's found in the same section that the story of Elijah shows up and Ahab. It comes from 2 Kings chapter 17, and here's what it says, top of the screen. They worship the Lord. Time out. Just stay with me. Is that what we did at the beginning of the service? I mean, for the most part, we were here, and maybe you felt uncomfortable singing or not, but that was us collectively worshiping God, worshiping Jesus. Yep, high five, we believe in Jesus. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. I'm assuming most of you, if not almost all of you, are here because you believe in Jesus. That's why you're here. (coughs) We worship the Lord. However, they worship the Lord, but they also serve their own gods and idols. You see, here's what you need to understand is that you can be a follower of Jesus and still struggle with idolatry at the same time. They are not mutually exclusive. I believe Jesus was the son of God and there are a few things in my life that I value, love, and pursue more than God. So could I ask a favor from you? Don't waste the last 30 minutes of your life. Look at that screen and be honest. Is there something that you've loved, valued, or pursued more than God? Have you allowed something to become an idol in your life? And maybe it's not even on the screen. This is not an exhaustive list. I'm going to take just a couple minutes. I want to tell you four truths about idols. Wrap it up. Before I do, I want to show you a quote from a guy called Kyle Eilman. 
He's a pastor, author, and he says this. Idolatry is the number one issue in the Bible. Idolatry isn't just one of many sins. Rather, it's the one great sin that all others come from. All of the mess that we might have in our life, it all can be traced back to somewhere you have an idol. You've allowed something in your life, a place that only God deserves. Very interesting. Four truths about idols, real quick. Number one, idols will eventually always disappoint us. Always disappoint us. I'm assuming we have a lot of Warrior fans here. Last five years, the Golden State Warriors have been in the championship five years in a row. How are they doing this year? Not so good. You know why? Because that's how it works in sports. Now, whether it's a person or a sports team or a career, Jeremiah 10, 14 has something to say about it. Those who make idols are disillusioned. Because eventually that person will let you down and that career will let you down or the warriors will let you down. They'll let you down. If you give it a place in your life that it doesn't deserve. The second, idols will eventually dominate us. This is interesting. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says this. Before you knew Christ, which is the norm, before you knew Christ, you were controlled by dead idols who always led you astray. So it's easy to think, well, drugs can control me and alcohol can control me. All those other good things can control you as well. They can control your schedule. They can control your mind. They can control your feelings. And that's just as dangerous. They control you. Number three, idols will deform you if you're not careful. What fault? Or, or Jeremiah 2.5, they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. You see, you never intend it to go that way. Ever. But if you allow something else to be the most important thing in your life other than Jesus and God, eventually it messes you up. Eventually it changes you. And the last one, idols will sometimes destroy you. I heard someone say, Satan doesn't care who you worship as long as it's not Jesus. He doesn't care who you worship as long as it's not Jesus. If it's not Jesus, no matter who it is, he wins. Whether it's a person or a career, anything good, if it's not Jesus, he wins. That Saturday in September when I busted up my leg, one of the things that I hated doing was that Saturday I called uh, Dave Sauer, our associate pastor at the time, and I gave him my sermon notes, and I said, here, do the best you can, and I'm not going to be able to make it Sunday. And one of the things that was in that sermon, uh, I, I really wanted to talk to you about because it struck me so deeply. It was so interesting. And I, I don't know if he covered it. He probably did, but I'm bringing it up today because it so well fits into our topic this morning. And it has to do with this image right here. Let's put it on the screen. It has to do with why most Egyptian statues are all missing their nose. Did you know that's the number one question when you go into Egyptian museums? Why is the statue missing its nose? Now, most of us would say, well, it's an old statue. It's been around for two, 3,000 years, and it it gets bumped around, and maybe it fell, and if it falls, it's going to knock off the nose. Not so quick. They've done some research, and the plot thickens when they discover that the damage done to these statues is intentional. It's deliberate. And so they've now begun to 
analyze and, and recall that ancient Egyptians actually believed that the personhood of a god or a pharaoh resided in that statue, in that image. So if you wanted to, to hurt that god, then you had to hurt the image. So for example, if there was an image or a statue or an idol of a god and we want, didn't want God to see us anymore, then you scratch out its eyes. If you didn't want God to hear you anymore, you chisel off its ears. If you didn't want that God to breathe anymore, you know what they did? They cut off its nose, believing that by cutting off its nose, you would cut off air to the God and thereby kill it. Edward Blyberg from Brooklyn Egyptian Museum says the following about all these noses being missing from Egyptian statues. They, they were not vandals, recklessly and randomly striking out works of art. In fact, the targeted precision of their chisels suggested that they were skilled laborers, trained and hired for this exact purpose. Their goal, listen carefully, their goal, to kill an idol. To kill an idol. I want you to turn to the person next to you and I want you to say this. Break a nose. Go ahead and tell them. Break a nose. Not break your nose, break a nose. You know, it's, you could see how this, this story captured my attention. It's when I read this story, I thought of the verse that I, I included for you on the first part of the study guide. I didn't read it, but I want to show it to you now. In the book of Colossians chapter 3, here's what Paul says. Put to death or break a nose. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. What do I want you to do with what we've learned this morning? Three things. Three things. Number one. I want you to identify your idol. I, I really, I don't mean to guilt anybody. I'm, I'm with you on this. If I'm honest, and I hope you are, there's a couple things that have creeped into my life over the years that I valued, loved more than God. That's why this is such a prevalent issue among us. Just be honest. What is it for you? What one thing, what two or three things every once in a while potentially consume you emotionally? What do you most daydream about? That begins to answer, what is it that you idolize? The second thing, confess your sin. So when I'm doing the notes this past week, point number two, it actually didn't say that. You want, you want to know what point number two used to say? Point number two was this, confess your struggle. You want to know why I used the word struggle initially instead of sin? I didn't want you to feel bad. I, I never do. But then I said, no, semantically that's not right. Because the minute I do that, I begin to act, we begin to act like Ahab. We begin to minimize the seriousness of what this really is. You see, idolatry isn't just a struggle. The Bible calls it a sin. Now, it may be an oops by my, my mistake. I didn't mean to do it, but it's a sin. So confess it for what it is. God, I, I've allowed someone or something in my life 
to become more valuable to me than you, and I'm sorry. And three, redirect your love. So for, for many of us, any idol we have is probably something good that we've allowed to become great in our life. You know, in some cases, you don't stop loving that. You just make sure you love God more than that. Identify your idol, confess your sin, redirect your love. Let's pray. Father, we came here today, read those verses from 1 Kings, thinking, eh, today probably doesn't have much to do with me. And we've realized more than anything else, this may be a Sunday that deals with the major, most important issue we all struggle with. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'm going to give you 60 seconds, you and God. Allow the Holy Spirit to whisper in your ear something you potentially value more than God. What is it? And whenever you hear the Holy Spirit, confess that to God. God, I'm sorry. I don't want to do that anymore. You and God, 60 seconds. Dear Heavenly Father, you know that this week my study time, what the verse that most struck me was that, that one verse in 2 Kings 17 that speaks of a people worshiping you, acknowledging you as God, but also having idols in their life. I didn't think you could do that. I thought it was one or the other, and, and yet the more, more we studied and the, the more we've looked at verses, it's possible. It's possible to claim your son Jesus as Christ, as Savior, but at the same time, have things in our life that we value more than you. Father, we're sorry for doing that. In many cases, in most cases, we didn't do it on purpose. But today, today we heard you. Today we're going to do our best to rearrange the order. Today we realize that by giving someone or something a place that doesn't belong to it, the place that only you deserve, that in the end, it, it actually ends up messing our lives up. So thanks for teaching us, Father, this morning. We're incredibly grateful and constantly surprised how practical your word is. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.